The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Brian Fisher. He is a vascular surgeon currently practicing in Tennessee. I'm going to talk about his current practice model, his pathway to medicine, and then some of the things that he's passionate about in the field. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. What, a real, what an honor to, to be a part of this. I know you've been doing this for uh, just about a year now. And, uh, you know, again, appreciate the opportunity to, to get this kind of platform uh, in, in a growing uh, you know market. And so really proud of what you've been able to do. Uh, well, honor's mine. Uh, you're the first guest I've had that I actually met through Twitter. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's a, it's a great platform. Obviously, there are some uh, you know there are some downsides as with, as with anything else. But I can say that I've met some really outstanding uh, folks in medicine, uh, especially black men in the the uh, med Twitter space. It's really been uh, outstanding, and obviously you've been uh, a part of that cohort. So again, really the honor is mine. Yeah, really good uh, sense of community. So, Doctor Fisher, as we start out, you are a vascular surgeon. I haven't talked to. Um, someone in that specialty on this show yet. So can you explain to us what vascular surgery is for the medical students um, and aspiring medical students and what your practice is like? Absolutely. So you know, getting me talking to, to vascular surgeon, you'll probably have to redirect me because I can go on for days about it. <laughs> uh, but the, 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 the major thrust of what we do is uh, restoring blood flow in a normal fashion, um, whether that involves a, a change in the vessel, blood vessel integrity, you know, it's, it's getting large and there's turbulent flow or if there's a blockage somewhere. And again, we, we know about atherosclerotic disease, obviously, and then the, uh, the aneurysmal side of it. And between those two, that, that forms the majority of the work that, that I do. Um, the idea is to connect a normal blood vessel to normal blood vessels and something that a, a plumber would do. And we're very, very similar. Uh, that, that really is the major thrust of, of the treatment in our patients. With regard to uh, kind of my practice, uh, I've been in, uh, in practice now, and it's unusual for, you know, for eight years to be in the same place. You know, that half of the folks that come out of training uh, will, will be in a place, and normally they make it a couple of years, and they end up uh, somewhere else. We've been fortunate. My wife actually picked uh, Nashville uh, as you know, the place that we would end up raising our children, and it's worked out, uh, you know, quite well. As far as my practice is concerned, uh, I work at a tertiary care referral center. I'm a part of a large multi-specialty uh, surgery group. You know, we have roughly uh, 14 or 15 vascular surgeons. Oh, wow. And the rest are general surgery. Uh, and then we are, we've actually uh, added some outstanding podiatrists to that, to that fold. And so we, we practice, again, in the, uh, Nashville and um, kind of the metropolitan area and provide uh, you know, the full spectrum of care in those patients, again, from general surgery and colon resections all the way to uh, thoracal abdominal aneurysms and, uh, again, a toy amputation somewhere in between there. As far as my practice is concerned, uh, what I've done over the years is really uh, similar to what I, I've, again, kind of seen in my, in my training. The majority of operations that I was doing and observing uh, as a medical student, more observing, of course, uh, was the uh, open route, uh, open triple A's. They stayed in the hospital for seven to 10 days. Yeah. Uh, yeah again, lower extreme interventions with a lot of bypasses. And there was uh, obviously uh, a lot of value, and those patients did quite well if they, you know, when they got through the operation and once they got out of the hospital, as far as, um, you know, patency of that blood vessel uh, or that aneurysm repair uh, being durable. 
it was there was no doubt about it. Uh, in today's world, uh, there is more uh, emphasis on endovascular or a, a less invasive way of, of treating these, these lesions again, whether it's aneurysm repair and doing an endograft where we go through the groin with a tiny incision uh, through the skin and actually close the, the hole in the vessel uh, percutaneously, uh, all the way to the treatment of uh, carotid disease with a, uh, a cut down, a small cut down and the placement of a stent, it's really transformed the way that we look at, uh, again, treatment of blood vessels uh, when, they're, uh, when they have disease process. That's uh, very interesting and kind of interesting how you do the uh, spectrum from narrowed blood vessels to vastly expanded blood vessels. Yeah, it, the dichotomy between you know, large, blood vessels, large blood vessels, small blood vessels, one of the most fascinating things that I've thought about in medicine and kind of pondered even when I was a medical student is the idea of you know, how the body is able to balance clotting and uh, keep the blood thin enough that it doesn't form clots uh, and actual bleeding. It, it, the cardiovascular system is one of the more fascinating things. Uh, and again, I feel like it's a privilege to be, to be a part of that. Uh, the the process in, in being able to tackle those uh, you know those different problems the complex problems that happen throughout the body and Dr Fisher for you specifically because you have practiced for several years you have some leadership roles and responsibilities how much time do you spend in the operating room any given week versus in clinic versus your admin time you know, that's a great question so the the majority of my work is uh, again as a private practitioner uh, in in the current model is. I operate most of the time, uh, probably 80% uh, percent of that time, 90% of that time is spent uh, doing intervention on patients and, and, again, restoring good blood flow or treating uh, aneurysmal disease. In all likelihood, again, when we're talking about the, the, the work day, the traditional work day, the other 10% is probably spent on uh, things uh, from a clinic standpoint, uh, both seeing patients in the clinic space and also from telemedicine. And then, honestly, my free time is used to do <laughs> oh, the man. other work, you know, again, when it comes to, to consulting and, and things like that. And it, I'm in a unique situation where my wife is very supportive of what I do, but I'm also very cognizant uh, of the time allocation when it comes to both life and you know my, my career, but also raising four children. And believe you me, I don't sacrifice uh, much when it comes to the, the things that are important to them <clears throat> and my professional life. And I, I think that makes me a better physician overall. Uh, but in saying so, again, uh, there's a there's amount of my work that's uncompensated that I do uh, for the sake of, again, providing leadership, having a presence in the, uh, in the hospital space and at the division level. Uh, it requires a, a certain level of commitment and if you're not willing to do so, someone is going to fill that vacuum. And so that, that's one of the things, again, I'm in a unique situation uh, that my, my wife and my family are supported, and I'm able to balance the two, uh, I think, quite well. That's good to know. Um, and who are you operating with? Do you have residents or fellows or PAs? You know, honestly, I, I, I miss the days as a, as a fellow, especially, uh, but even as a resident, uh, operating with co-residents and uh, having medical students present. Uh, and as a fellow where I really, you know, I had an amazing experience uh, during my fellowship at Vanderbilt. Uh, it was like I was at home. And many of the, the residents were talented enough that we could tackle those cases with, uh, you know, obviously very close uh, attending supervision. But they allowed us to do those operations. And I think that we did them well and we had, uh, you know, really good outcomes. It says something about uh, the ability uh, of that institution to to really have and select people that are 
that are capable of taking that, that next step uh, from an independent standpoint. I unfortunately don't get the uh, get the privilege of working with um, uh, medical students or, or, res- or I should say residents and, and fellows, uh, again, as a private practitioner. I do every case that, uh, that's posted by me. I typically have a first assistant that's in operating with me and sometimes a second, uh, again, with carotids and, and more complex operations. Those are typically done with a, uh, again, with a first a surgical first assistant. And that can vary from a talent standpoint to uh, folks that are that will remind you of another attending or another doctor. Again, like operating with one of my partners, uh, and then there there uh, sometimes some uh, some challenges. Hmm. Uh, just often with even just exposure uh, to doing operations and, and obviously the number, which makes tends to make the skill set set better. So that it's a you know there's a plus minus. I don't get the privilege of, of working with other uh, trainees and, and teaching them kind of my way of doing things, which I I've been moderately successful at being able to do that. But at the same time, I, as a private practitioner, I get I get my hands on every single wire, uh, every operation. You know, I really I'm I'm the primary person that's providing that treatment, and there, there's there's a certain upside to that as well that I enjoy. Just goes to show the kind of variety in different practice models. Absolutely. Uh, there, you know, and especially in private practice, there, there are so many differences that can occur. And it, uh, I can't emphasize to the audience, when you're choosing that type of model, uh, how important it is to make sure that your institution is going to be able to provide uh, personnel that are adept at doing the procedure that, you, that you're going to undertake. <clears throat> Over time, no matter your skill set, uh, you know, your patient starts to uh, wane as you get farther away from... <laughs> <laughs> finishing training. And it's so important to have someone, and you notice a big difference uh, in the folks that you're working with. I have probably three or four first assistants that literally operate like it's one of my partners. They're that good and they're that attentive and they, uh, they can follow the steps and anticipate what I'm getting ready to do. Uh, and I've experienced the, the opposite uh, you know, in, in, in my world. Maybe a corollary to having an, an outstanding resident uh, versus one that may have some challenges. Uh, however, you're investing in someone's growth and in them uh, becoming uh, the future, especially. So I think there's a different, there's there's just a different approach. I think that the uh, you know the outcome is certainly different, and why it's important that we do a great job in training uh, again these residents and, and uh, interested medical students. That's Hopefully, good. The OR and private practice may end up doing multiple things. They may get pulled into orthopedic surgery or some other specialty, uh, depending on their talent level. And so that that's one of the kind of the stark differences. Gotcha, gotcha. Some good food for thought. So, so Dr. Fisher, uh, take us back to the beginning. Uh, when did you decide to go into medicine and what was your pathway? It, it's so interesting uh, to me. Uh, <laughs> I was a sophomore in uh, college and I met um, a physician, a primary care physician, who had been very successful um, in the Nashville community. And we were having a discussion about you know, life in general and, you know, what he had been able to achieve. This was a uh, black man with uh, three daughters uh, and, you know, his kids were in private school. They had done all the things that I, I saw as far as uh, what I would deem success uh, back then. And as we talked about it, my, my plans to become a clinical psychologist, maybe an industrial, industrial psychologist and understand really, uh, you know, how to. Uh, make the workforce better, you know, from a selection standpoint and then, you know, behavioral standpoint once they get into the workplace setting. 
uh, he redirected me and said, after maybe two hours of, of talking, uh, he said, you need to become a doctor. Hmm. And I remember when he first said that, I was like, okay, well, then I'm interested. We literally spent the next three hours, and he went through his pathway, going through Meharry, burning the uh, you know the midnight oil, staying up until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and how difficult that was. But he's like, you know, look, just talking to you, he's like, I know you can do it. And funny enough, I believe him. Uh, when I left that day, his name is Fred Thomas, uh, by the way. Uh, I think he's moved to Texas since then. But I decided that I was going to apply to medical school, and I wrote a, a personal statement, and I I didn't really know what to write about first, and it's funny. The, the thing that came to me was my oldest brother, uh, who has since passed away, severely mentally and physically disabled, uh, lived to be almost 60 years old when they predicted he lived to be 15. He had one of his first uh, uh, grand mal seizures and then had uh, you know, multiple seizures in a row. And that was one of the, the very first times that my mom who did a great job as far as, uh, you know, the day in and day out, uh, difficulties and challenges and taking care of someone that's, that's totally dependent. Uh, she actually had to call 911 and I'll never forget that the fire truck showed up at a house on 99th street and, uh, they ended up yeah, treating my brother and he got better. And I don't think until then, my brother always had seizures and it was just kind of a regular part of life. And we just made sure that we didn't have any, you know, any food in his mouth or anything like that that would uh, pose a greater risk, you know, falls and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I asked my mom and I said, you know, what would happen if he just, you know, kept having seizures and when the status epilepticus, which I obviously I learned later on. And, you know, she just described his brain swelling and he would die from it. And that ended up being my, you know, that was my personal statement. That really was my testament as to why I felt like I was meant to be in the medical field, uh, taking care of people. Hmm. I'd seen what the, you know, the, the miracles, if you will, of, of modern medicine and the ability for him to have a, a fairly good quality of life over those years. Uh, was was something really special, and that 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 continued to resonate throughout my training and 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 going into residency, and and again carried on into in my current practice. And I've seen kind of the ups and downs of of medicine, and again seeing my brother die um, was tough before. And this is where COVID really it really took shape and uh, became a major uh, you know storyline, and was a you know part of mortality in our in our world. Uh, you know, seeing him die and seeing or having a conversation with my mom about uh, a brother that was born before me that died of congenital heart defects and then having a son that had open heart surgery and lived through that and is thriving now as a six month old. It's just been an amazing journey. And, you know, I, I've been, I feel blessed to, to be a part of the, the whole thing. Yeah. No, that's an incredible uh, story. And I'm sure he's uh, looking down, smiling on you uh, right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you finished up college, and then I saw from your bio you went and taught for a year before you started medical school? I did. There's a, a pretty good story about this. I had finished undergrad and already made the decision to defer a year. I wanted to take a year off. I worked really hard during undergrad, had great mentors and great, had great experiences uh, both at Tennessee State University here in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, doing uh, summer research uh, both at UT and then at Yale. I knew that me taking a year off would, would be a smart move to just kind of charge the battery again. In the interim, uh, between uh, undergraduate medical school, I met my, back then, obviously my girlfriend, who's now my wife, I've known for 21 years. 
And that really was the impetus to me being in Virginia. Uh, she was an uh, undergrad at uh, Norfolk State University, and I needed to be close to her. And so Northern Virginia, there was a, a, a relative shortage of uh, elementary school teachers. My parents were both uh, educators. My grandmother was a, a teacher. My sister is actually a principal in uh, Milwaukee Public Schools and has done quite well. So it was really a natural fit uh, <clears throat> as far as uh, you know, passion to, to educate and, and really be in, the, in communities that, that needed it. That was an outstanding year. Uh, those kids were amazing. I learned so much about life and uh, things not being fair, but seeing potential in uh, young uh, you know, boys and girls who could only grow up and do something that they were passionate about. And so that was really, that was the cool thing. Uh, I learned so much and it was a great year. Again, I was close to to uh, Latina, my wife Latina, uh, and that made the world uh, whole and great to me uh, back then. And obviously, it's carried through uh, to this day. That's good. So, Dr. Fisher, you, in addition to all the things that you do um, as a clinician, you also work in the medical consulting realm. Can you talk about that for a little bit? I do. Uh, so my consulting role in, in various companies uh, started probably a year, year and a half after uh, I got out of fellowship. I experienced uh, the, the role that companies that had great products uh, could play in, in patient care uh, and kind of disseminating that information. As someone who worked to specialize in the lower extremity realm and, and be good at that craft, uh, I quickly, I think I was fairly quickly, uh, got noticed from a uh, from an interventional standpoint uh, on the work that I was doing. Uh, you know, there were multiple folks that played a role in uh, allowing me to have that platform, and that's really only grown uh, from first being on the podium and giving local talks to uh, primary care doctors to training physicians from other companies, uh, and also uh, seeing what's cutting edge from a uh, research and development standpoint, from some of the household names in uh, cardiovascular care. It's really something that I hold near and dear to my heart. And one of the, the important things that I've been able to do, I don't get to train uh, residents and fellows, which one day I, I, I probably see myself doing uh, in the transition to uh, something different. I do get to train uh, personnel that will be in the room with uh, interventionalists uh, across the country. Okay. And the great thing about that is, given the basics uh, as, as far as what we're doing from a lower extremity standpoint and kind of the, the fundamental steps and how you get to the end result. And the great thing in the companies that I've, I've consulted with so far is they give me the, the leeway uh, and the freedom to talk about what's best for the patient and not really focus on the commercial side of it. Obviously, every company thinks that their device is the best thing uh, for the patient. I've really been fortunate to be able to tout and talk about, again, kind of the fundamental steps of how you get to the end result and how different tools in the tool bag can help you get there. And how it's just important to, to be able to uh, easily use those different devices and know which ones are, uh, are important for a particular step and knowing when not to do those things. And so, I, I, again, I've been really fortunate to, uh, to be a part of uh, product development uh, and initial product releases, and you know, even the first person on earth to use a particular device. Wow. It's been a, a, a quite, the, quite the honor, again, as a private practitioner, uh, which is, I, I, I think many will tell you it's kind of unheard of. No, that's pretty cool. And then, uh, but how do you navigate those contracts? I imagine there's some 
money or financial gain involved? Yes, definitely. Uh, I'm compensated for my um, for my time, uh, for which obviously any company that's willing to invest in in what I can do, they know that they're they can get a return. Uh, and, and, and the most important thing is that again that dissemination of knowledge uh, in a um, in a way that, that people don't understand and also in a way that an expert would be able to do. My, my knowledge when it comes to, to contracts and negotiations, uh, I, there's really one person that has played an instrumental role in my ability to do so, and that's my older brother. Uh, I have a brother, Darren, who's six and a half years older than me, who has literally invested everything that was great in him into my success and really exposing me to uh, what success looks like and how to more importantly value my work as a, as a person, as an, as an expert. Um, by having me do things like hire someone as a 21 year old to, to help me file for a patent or hire someone to do my taxes, you know, I, I can't emphasize the role that he played in saying that, no, you, you really can do things in a u- unique manner. There aren't many individuals on earth that can do what you can do. And then you take into it other characteristics. You really are, are unique. And so knowing my value has just been a, played a big role. And I'm confident in that when I walk into a room and I'm talking to uh, the folks that are in charge of, of setting my hourly rate, I can look them in the eyes and say, you know, I know that I can give you a return on investment, not from cheap plugs or uh, something that I don't believe in, um, but rather Again, looking at the entire platform and saying, "Here's the, here are the things that work, and here's why it works," and giving an honest side to it. You know, again, people don't want to hear that everything works every single time. Uh, they want to hear real world, and I'm uniquely able to to deliver that message in a pretty objective way. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And being who you are, doing what you do, and being excellent at it, and working with these different companies has given you a platform to support one of your passions, which is preventing amputations and especially the associated healthcare disparities. So can you talk about some of the disparities that you know exist in amputations? Yeah, thanks for touching on that. And it's, uh, there, there's an interesting story to this. Uh, I'll briefly give you kind of background. You know, as a newly minted vascular surgeon out of Vanderbilt, I, I felt like I was very equipped to tackle everything from head to toe when it came to cardiovascular disease, and again, in the scope of what a vascular surgeon can do. Uh, all things attached to the heart and every blood vessel outside of the brain. It was also pretty quickly uh, after training that I saw a middle-aged uh, black male who in retrospect had the courage that I'm hoping that, it, that we can help all of our patients to achieve mm. in saying that you know, when someone walks into the room and says, you need an amputation, he said, absolutely not. And it was one of the more powerful uh, things that I've seen a patient do. And it ended up saving his leg, and he ended up ultimately doing well. But for me, it was very apparent that someone could walk into a room and tell a patient, you need your leg off, and even something like an above-the-knee amputation, where a below-the-knee would actually be uh, the best operation, and there was no accountability. And after reflecting on that, it became clear that that was what I was here to do. Uh, I, I learned a, a, a very valuable skill set in treating lower extremity disease. Again, you learn pop people bypasses in uh, vascular surgery training, uh, you know, certainly back when I was doing my training. And then learning the endovascular side of it uh, and really understanding the nuances from that standpoint was a unique position to be able to address these patients that otherwise would end up, again, with a an extensive amputation and then subsequently 
many of them don't end up walking. They ultimately end up dying from it. Hmm. So as a, as a, as a black male, uh, who, I don't know if I see myself as a role model. I, I, I do what I, what I can when it comes to, um, to humanity and treating patients. Uh, but certainly in my blood, my dad was a freedom rider. Uh, and as a young kid, I didn't understand, you know, what that meant and what he's done. Being fearless when it comes to adversity, um, where his life was actually in danger. It's a no brainer for, for me as, as someone who can help treat these patients. Uh, I'm not risking my life. Um, Directly, obviously, the, the, the sacrifice is certainly uh, nothing to laugh at. But I do. I'm in a unique position to be able to to help to help patients, and uniquely in a position to help the black community. And I've really dedicated uh, hours outside of patient care, which certainly takes up enough time uh, for this endeavor. And it's something I'm passionate about. Uh, I I live for it, and uh, again, develop. Uh, devoted countless hours to making a difference, both from a legislative standpoint, uh, from the everyday practice and uh, from an educational standpoint with other practitioners, and again, just patient empowerment. Uh, and ultimately, the goal being patients can walk into a, a scenario where they're being offered anything that doesn't sound right or something that's questioned or it's an end result where you can't really take it back, like a, you know, taking off a limb and asking the important questions and, and getting another referral to hopefully get a, a, at least get a second opinion and hopefully get a, a different outcome, which we know can be achieved in, in, in the black community. Yeah, that's so important. And for people like in my position, right, I'm an anesthesiologist, I don't know what the indication is for an above knee amputation or a below knee amputation. So as a, a surgeon who approaches these cases, why might one surgeon say we're going to cut above the knee but you say you can uh, preserve more of the extremity. You know, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and it, it, it speaks to the complexity of lower extremity interventions and the lack of focus that we had as a, as a field on tackling this disease process. Multiple things go into and you're preserving a limb. Uh, ultimately, uh, though, it, it, it's interesting to note that oftentimes there, there are modalities that can uh, leave a patient with a longer limb, which ultimately leads to them being able to walk with less energy and, again, increase the likelihood that they're able to ambulate, which preserves uh, their function and they end up living longer. Um, expertise makes a difference, and I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, that our de-emphasis on the importance of lower extremity functional limb preservation uh, reflects how we approach it in, in training. Uh, I remember as an intern going down and doing amputations on patients. And of course, I did, did a diligent job and I paid attention. I read the books on how to do it. But there's a certain level of expertise that is incumbent upon us to be able to do that operation well. And unfortunately, uh, the emphasis is not, not placed on functional preservation as a whole. And again, it's reflected by Again, that being an intern level case. Right now we have specialists that are sorry, we have non specialists like general surgeons, orthopedic surgeons who do large community amputations. Some of them do an outstanding job and uh, assess the blood flow. Unfortunately, many do not. And there are stories in patients every day who are having they're being told that they're going to have a, a, a certain level of amputation, they come back with a higher level. Hmm. Uh, and, and many of those don't even have a vascular workup or have the expertise to address disease, again, where limb preservation is a, a possibility. 
and, and, and a decent probability in the correct hands, many of these patients can do well uh, and preserve a functional limb, but it requires uh, having that level of expertise that hopefully our, our field and the community uh, puts an emphasis on in the, in the coming uh, years and decades. So let me ask another question then, because you, you mentioned being able to ambulate with less energy. So what is the difference between an above knee amputation and lower and below knee amputation in terms of that patient's ability to uh, ambulate? That's an outstanding question. Uh, the, the fundamental belief is that the longer that you leave a limb, uh, the less energy. Uh, it, it's, I think that level can be exponential, especially as you add multiple comorbidities. But we know that's more difficult in an above the knee, especially high above the knee amputation, versus the, even a through the knee amputation where they lose the ability to flex the air and maintain a knee joint. However, again, you're just leaving a longer limb um, that, that, that preserves some of that energy. In many of our patients, we have uh, obesity plays a role, mm. and an extra load makes it even more difficult and unlikely that a patient is able to preserve or become ambulatory again after having to undergo an amputation. So longer, uh, when it heals, and when it's functional, it's certainly better than, than, than short. Gotcha. That, that's good to know because, I mean, you know, medicine's so fragmented. So we're all looking at things from different perspectives, whether, whether it's an internist trying to decrease length of stay and, and push a patient on or anesthesiologist, I'm just, you know, getting them through surgery, uh, but thinking about the long-term effects. I'm asking one more clinical question. I know I'm, uh, I'm just yes. nerding out right now because <laughs> you guys love to take off toes bit by bit by bit, right? So how should I reframe the way I think about this patient that's coming back for their third toe amputation or excisional biopsy? How should I think about that scenario? So it, it, you think about it traditionally uh, from a patient uh, you know, risk stratification standpoint. And the more that these um, more that patients have to undergo an operation and whether they go general anesthesia uh, or local, every time that you make a decision on a patient, patient there's a risk of uh, wound healing, uh, infection, and, and all the above. Uh, in adding to a patient that has um, a lack of uh, adequate blood flow to, to the extremity, uh, this is even further amplified or exacerbated. So the way that I like to think about it is we want to be doing assessments on patients and ensuring adequate flow to the vessel bed, even in cases where we have to do, unfortunately, if you end up having to do a, a major or a minor amputation, you want to, uh, you want to be able to accurately assess and make a good determination that if you do an amputation at that level, there is enough blood flow going to that vessel bed, again, to achieve healing. A patient that undergoes multiple amputations, let's say you know, they undergo the first digit, on, uh, first digit on the foot, then the second, then the TMA, you've clearly not addressed the inciting event that is causing this patient to continue again to progress. It's like anything else when it comes to wound healing. If you're doing the right things, the uh, the wound bed will start to show granulation and start to show signs that there that healing is occurring. When it's going the other direction, if you don't do something different, whether it's controlling blood glucose levels, which has turned out to be equally important in patients that that have adequate blood flow, when their blood glucose isn't well controlled, or when they smoke you know heavily, we see those patients still uh, do do quite poorly. So that's been, you know, really the major, uh, major emphasis when it comes to, to to my patient cohort and addressing those different things and getting the best outcome that I can. Yeah, that, that's good. I appreciate you sharing that. I know myself and my colleagues kind of roll our eyes like, oh, all right, here they come again, but they just keep taking the, the foot off bit by bit. But you're actually uh, ideally evaluating the blood flow and 
proceeding. Yeah, we just we should not. If you see that happening routinely in your community, then something's not being done correctly. Okay. Uh, uh, again, we should be able to establish a certain level of flow, uh, keep that level established, and then make the ag- uh, the select the appropriate level with the highest level, uh, with the higher confidence that it's going to be wound healing. We should be able to do that relatively accurately. And again, these are complex patients. You can't do it perfectly every single time. Uh, however, if you've seen someone go from, again, one digit, several digits, TMA, BK, in a fairly short period of time, someone's not adequately uh, both addressing nor assessing uh, the level of blood flow that would be appropriate for this patient. And in doing so, you're prolonging the ability to get, again, get the appropriate level of amputation, get them in a prosthetic, and get them ambulating so that they, again, can be mobile, which is what we're meant to be doing. Gotcha. So for our clinicians or for our people that are listening that have family members that could be in the situation, would you say, you know, if it's a podiatrist running the show or a general surgeon that maybe at some point they should request a vascular surgery consult or, or second opinion? Absolutely. Whenever you hear the word amputation, okay, it, while it may seem obvious, uh, it's important to get uh, quickly uh, have an avenue to get uh, second, third opinions. I understand in a real world situation, we don't have that luxury to be able to get uh, that information uh, necessarily quickly for our patients. And hopefully that's something we can address. And maybe that's something we as a, as a black community, as uh, minority communities where amputations are uh, high and, uh, more likely to occur. Uh, but getting that second, third opinion is, is paramount to finding the right clinician that can, can tackle the job. It is, this may be alarming to you, but regional variability drives amputations. Uh, and hmm. you can be in one part of town, and you may have a specialist that, that does everything uh, medically necessary to preserve a limb to a place where a non-specialist, uh, orthopedic surgeon, general surgery, cardiac surgery, could do an amputation and no one even bats an eye. They just say that that's how it goes and, yeah. and, and there you are. Well, that's definitely something that I could take away from this conversation. Um, and in my practice, if I see this stuff happening, I'll at the very least recommend that the uh, surgeons get vascular surgery involved if they haven't already. Absolutely. There are, there are guys in multiple specialties all across the country and across the world that are addressing this disease uh, in a uh, in a manner that goes beyond dabbling in lower extremity disease, they really have taken this and made it a major part of their practice. Many of these folks are uh, very close friends and, and colleagues, and I'm humbled to, to to be a part of that group. But really, there there are few places around the United States where there isn't someone within you know fairly uh, close proximity that deals with this this disease process and does so uh, from an expert perspective. That's great. Well, Dr. Fisher, speaking with you has obviously highlighted the need for more representation in the field of vascular surgery. It's incredible to see the work that you're doing to help eradicate this healthcare disparity. And I'm sure you're making your uh, father proud as you carry on his legacy. Oh, brother, listen, the honor is mine. Uh, And I've always had a ton of respect for you. And again, listen to uh, the immense amount of positivity that that you've always put in your message 
when it comes to, to patients and, and humanity in general. And so this is a, a, a long time coming. Uh, it's been a, a real pleasure to connect with you. And I look forward to meeting in person uh, really soon and helping you, again, make this podcast a big deal. This is such an important perspective that we don't get to hear. Uh, you're respected uh, part of the medical community. And again, I, I just consider it a great honor to be here today. And I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So Dr. Fisher, I know you're on Twitter. It's where we connected uh, appropriately. Your handle is at amputation suck, but how else can people get a hold of you and follow you and see what you're up to? Uh, you know, that's a great question. And probably the best way uh, is through Twitter. Again, I, ultimately I'm not looking to be an influencer. Um, <laughs> what you see on Twitter, uh, to be perfectly honest, is uh, a, a window into my world that I think you can provide without giving everything up there need to be boundaries obviously but if i can be a if i can be an influence without being an influencer and if people can see a, a young man who has been blessed with uh, being a part of a great community uh, people that have taken a, a, or made an investment in my life and we can see love of family and uh, if they can get something from that message and again, if I can, if I can reflect what what you've done and what I've seen over the the, the year or so that I've, I've followed you on Twitter, is that authentic person uh, who uh, believes that what they're doing ultimately is the right thing to do uh, through humanity, regardless if it, it supports what we necessarily believe, then I think that I've achieved something. Uh, and so, you know, that I can't tell you how much I admire you with you being younger than I am, what you think to achieve. <laughs> and again, you know, you've taken the, the time to, uh, to, to listen to my message. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, Dr. Fisher, we appreciate you. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll definitely stay tuned and, and continue to learn and grow with you on social media. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.